Namaste. This is the final episode for 2017. It's a special episode. Our team has selected uh, a few of the best videos, the best interviews we did this year, in their opinion, and they have taken out some clips to show you the highlights. Uh, this is the first year during which we have done an episode every week, so it's now a regular weekly show. Uh, you can watch these uh, entirely, these particular episodes in their entirety, on my Facebook page and my YouTube page. The first clip they selected is my one of my interviews with Dr. Subramaniam Swami, in which he explains the National Herald case against uh, Sonia Gandhi and Rahul Gandhi and explains that they are convicts out on bail. I had proved that there was a prima facie case of uh, cheating, uh, criminal misappropriation of property, and uh, criminal breach of trust. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, they had, the summons were issued. They came and they were arrested in the court. But since I did not object to their getting bail, they got bail for 50,000 rupees um, uh, surety, uh, uh, bond. And a surety of Mr. Uh, Anthony, in the case of Ms. Sonia Gandhi and Priyanka Gandhi, in the case of Rajiv, Rahul Gandhi. Uh, and they were let out on bail. So technically, they arrested people out on bail? Out on bail. Okay. Okay. You can't be on bail unless you are arrested right, right, anyway. Right. So now, uh, they were made to stand uh, like any accused in the open court. And it had a very uh, electrifying effect on the people that, you know, such big people mm -hmm. who were considered untouchable. Very important to do this. Yes. Uh, and, yeah. you know, have to stand like anybody else. Uh, now, now what has happened is afterwards, now the trial is to begin. Mm. And the court has to determine whether the trial is worth going forward, whether the material is substantive for conducting a trial which will lead to prosecution mm. and conviction. Now, in that, our CRPC, which is the Criminal Procedure Court, there's a beautiful provision which says that you can ask the court to summon documents that you want. Okay. And that are not personal to the uh, accused, so that you know the accused should not be able uh, made to damn himself or herself. So this whole thing is of a document base. There's the beauty of the national level cases. It's based on documents. The document is that uh, a company was formed with the, uh, Sonia Gandhi and Rahul Gandhi owning 76% uh, of the shares, and now it's gone up to 81. And that uh, they gave 50 lakhs uh, to the Congress party to uh, uh, transfer or assign the debt owned by the National Herald Company Associate Generals of 90 crores to them mm. on the grounds that 50 lakhs is better than nothing mm. and it can't, this, uh, this is a, a loan that cannot be recovered. And uh, so I've asked for documents. Where did you get the 50 lakhs when your own company is only 5 lakhs mm. paid up capital? Mm. Where did you get this 50 lakhs? Mm. It turns out it's by money laundering they've got it. That right. has been established. Then where did you deposit it in the Congress hmm. uh, budget? Hmm. And I say, please give me the documents of right. your budget. Right. So I can see that actually it has been uh, hmm. deposited. And uh, furthermore, you, you say that you have assigned it. Uh, let's find out whether the, uh, the Associated Journals actually got 90 crores loan 
from the Congress Party. Where did you put it in the in the newspapers uh, uh, accounts? Mm. Uh, I want those documents. If it was given, it had been yes. received. And uh. if you have now uh, subsequently converted that 90 crores into nine crores worth of ten, uh, ten, uh, rupees ten share, uh, ten rupees share, that was the price when it was constituted or uh, was uh, was uh, incorporated in 1937. Oh. So did you do a share analysis? So zero inflation. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And they got 5,000 crores worth of property now. So really robbers yes. some uh, convoluted deals. That's right. These are all, uh, so these are all documents. I am expecting the document on the 1st of July. And so this is very strategic in the yeah. development of uh, India as a nation. Yes. To clean up all this mess to make a robust country. That's right. A state and people accountable is so important. Yeah. Now, I believe that in this, in India... If you can catch five, six people at the top and send them to jail, yes. by example yes. and fear, right. everybody will become honest. Some top politicians, a few top industrialists. Yes, that's right. They can't. They ought to go to jail. That's Some right. media guys. That's they, right. All these guys have to be. That's right. This is amazing work. This clip is from my interview with Professor Vaidyanathan, who just retired as professor at the Indian Institute of Management in Bangalore. He will discuss the 2017 GDP of India and the whole black money situation. Why did India's GDP fall? After all, we thought, uh, you know, new government has come. They're putting so much into investments and growth. And for a while, it seemed the GDP went up. And then there is demonetization, so we thought now it will actually help the economy. But why did the GDP fall, in your opinion, in India? GDP, you know, if you ask me, actually, uh, the fourth quarter it has fallen. It's not annual, right? We are still, you know, above 7% in that range. And there will be fluctuations. The demonetization did have an impact on the fourth quarter results because of the impact it has created on uh, what you may loosely call the uh, small business and informal and unorganized groups and other things who constitute roughly 50-55% of the economy. I would uh, say that our economy is still robust and uh, still very very uh, active. The thing is a uh, lot of uh, expectation is uh, regarding the government which I think is not uh, called for actually. If you ask me, our economy is growing in spite of the government, not due to the government. The lesser the government, as the famous old saying of Regan, you might remember, the seven famous words, you know, government is not a solution, government is a problem. So, the lesser the government, it would be actually more appropriate and better, right? That so, is not happening, actually. So, One. why... Second is... Yeah, please continue. Second is... Uh, there are certain very good, uh, well-intentioned suggestions which were taken up initially. For instance, this uh, creation of a Mudra Act in order to facilitate these uh, uh, small and uh, medium-sized businesses, which are the engines of our economic growth. And uh, that has not come through. There is a huge amount of uh, turf war going between uh, what you might loosely call the, uh, you know, RBI, Finance Ministry. So, would uh, not... Uh, you know, immediately conclude our economy is not doing well or anything. It is doing well, actually. And one thing is we are much, much more transparent than China. Kindly remember, China's numbers are not easily reliable. Every 15 years, like every communist regime, they revise their uh, old slogans. 
you know they say that 1 million were killed and then 10 million were killed like that their gdp numbers are not uh, very reliable and their banking system is in very bad shape so as a complete uh, country it is doing well relatively but uh, not as well as being projected by the uh, media yeah so so uh, what about this promise of bringing all the black money back from tax havens has that happened i mean i don't think it has happened yeah with a huge amount of uh, funds are still abroad and let us be very clear we have not taken any serious uh, uh, steps in terms of uh, bringing it back the amount is uh, any you know estimatedly between uh, around 1 trillion us dollar we can put it like that and everyone is involved in this business people political leaders sports people uh, you know <clears throat> music people you name one elite group in india they are involved in that so in that sense there is a sort of a radio silence among all you know who would like to uh, bell the cat that something you know but <clears throat> i am sure the funds would come because of two reasons india is now much more attractive destination compared to many other places where you know you get in europe or other places something like you know 2% 2.5% another india if you just keep money in the fixed deposit you get 6 7% you don't have to do anything so as a destination it is very attractive and uh, reasonably stable now and like the nehru time and after nehru what today there is yeah. you know much more stable and our uh, country can be the reason is tax evasion in india is uh, no confidence against the government but illicit money kept abroad is uh, no confidence against india itself it's a treason according to me right but now the confidence in india is slightly improving as you always point out why it is improving because the europeans and americans are telling that india is doing well see indians right. will never realize that we are doing well it has to be told by a white man If right. Wall Street Journal says that Bangalore is growing, I believe that. I sit in Bangalore, but that is immaterial. It has to be told by Wall Street Journal. So the white man is today telling India is one of the good uh, destination and opportunity. And so, not only the funds. No one important point. We have huge amount of pearls, gems, rubies, diamonds, and various type of murtis. You know the idols. which are also in the lockers of several uh, of these uh, tax haven banks including Switzerland i think that also has to be looked at it's a huge huge amount of funds one is the bonds and the shares and investments and other thing other is this this is not adequately being talked about because many so, a time our old uh, princes and the feudal lords and the magarajas they have all deposited there in the international uh, you know oh, tax havens so uh, the the yeah. the when you when you say there is money that should come back uh, one of the ways this money comes back is as fdi it gets laundered through mauritius uh, it gets so this illegal money goes abroad and some of it when it, they want to bring it back they clean it up as legal money and bring it back through some uh, some laundering services which clean it up like yeah, mauritius is a famous thing pn notes everybody recognizes that it is the way in which the our own money comes back to us now comes an important conversation with minakshi jain a historian 
And in this clip, we are talking about her perspective on the history of the whole dispute in Ayodhya. You're known for Ayodhya work. Yes. So, now that's a very controversial subject, mm -hmm. and it takes courage to take on that. Mm -hmm. uh, you've done very well. Uh, so tell me your work, what it reveals. See, uh, actually, uh, I did not know anything about the Ayodhya dispute. I just had an emotional reaction to the controversy when it broke out. I started uh, studying this subject sometime after the Allahabad High Court delivered its judgment. Soon after that, uh, somebody gave me a pamphlet, which was published by the Aligarh Historians Forum. It was mainly written by Irfan Habib. And that booklet was a total indictment of the Allahabad High Court judgment. Irfan Habib, for those who don't know, is one of the, the preeminent leftist scholars yes. who's devastated and tried to and try to discard and dismiss and reject every Hindu point of view or you know main I would say the true point of view. So when I read this, he said that the Supreme Court is going to overturn this judgment. I said, my goodness, is it possible for a court in India to give such a faulty judgment? That compelled me to read the five thousand page judgment. And when I read the judgment it was a real eye opener for me. But I want, what I want to say on Ayodhya, every point that was, uh, you know, uh, trumpeted by left historians was found to be faulty. By the court? By me and oh. by the court also. Okay. By the court, obviously the court did not accept so their point of view. So give me some major things they said which are wrong. Alright. So uh, I'll just, uh, uh, I can give many, many examples. Uh, but uh, just for the view of the readers, they said that the Ayodhya dispute was manufactured by the British in the 19th century as part of their policy of divide and rule. And they said that there is no evidence of any temple at that site before that. And they said Ram worship itself was a very late phenomena. It was an 18th, 19th century affair. Now, it is one of those ironies of history that documents that were wholly discrediting the left point of view had survived by chance in the Faizabad district court. Because, uh, uh, you know, the British started ruling over uh, Awadh in 1858, after the Great Mutiny. So, from 1858 onwards, all disputes on Ayodhya, they, the record was kept in the Faizabad district court. And it's amazing that those documents survived unharmed for 150 years. So, the first document which we have from Ayodhya is 1858. It is an FIR filed by the Thanedar of Avad. Hmm. And this Thanedar is filing an FIR that, you know, 25 Sikhs have gotten to Babri Masjid and they've started Havan and Puja. So, two days, so this one paper, small little paper, it has survived from 1858 till 2000, whatever. Then immediately two days later, the Muttawali, that is the superintendent of Babri Masjid, he also files a case in the Faizabad court in which he says that, you know, these six have entered and they are doing Havan and Puja and with Koila, charcoal, they have written Ram Ram all over the walls of the Masjid. And he also says that before it, this period, before this incident, the Hindus were already in control of the compound of Babri Masjid where they, which they regarded as Janamsthan and they were already there. That was already in their possession, but now the inside area and the outside area 
both the areas are open to them. So the Allahabad High Court regarded this as a very, very important uh, fact bearing on the case that there is a Muslim source which says that from 1858, the Hindus are inside and outside the court. Excellent. So what else was... So this is a big uh, defeat for the left. Yes. So from 1858 till 1949, uh, till the idol was placed inside the Babri Masjid, there are so many court cases where the Hindus and Muslims are fighting. And I'll just give you one example. Uh, that uh, I think it's in 1888 that the Babri Masjid Matawali, he files a case in court and he says that, you know, uh, up till now, at the time of Ram Nomi and Kartik Mela, uh, we, uh, the Hindus used to set up shops, prashad shops, uh, flower shops, fruit shops inside Babri Masjid uh, because, you know, so many people would come and they would make a sale and the agreement was that we would share the proceeds of the sale between the Babri Masjid. What year is that? About 1888. Okay. Huh. The exact year is there in my book. So, he said this year, the mahants of the Janamsthan, they have unilaterally changed the sharing basis without consulting us. So, please, he tells the uh, British authorities, Please uh, reinstate the old sharing basis, that is 50-50. So, so these are some very startling things. Mm. So, what do the Muslim sources say? Now, uh, there are two recent works that have been published which uh, uh, people interested in the Yodhya dispute should be aware of. One is the autobiography of K.K. Muhammad. He was an archaeologist with the ASI. And he, was, he has said that there was a very uh, serious thinking among the Muslims. Uh, that let us hand over this site. When? When the controversy broke out. Okay. Around 18, uh, 1989. That controversy, not the reason. Okay. 1989. Right. Okay. When the oh, 1989. Okay. Huh. So, he said there was a uh, strong thinking among the Muslims that let us hand over this site to the Muslim, uh, Hindus because it's of so much significance to them. But he says that a group of left historians convinced them that you have a very strong case, don't. So, it's the leftist who created a rift between Hindus and Muslims and he Muslim says, because they were ready to sort yes, it out. Yes, and he says that they prevented an amicable solution. The clip out of my Aditi Banerjee interview is significant because here she discusses her views on Jeffrey Kripal, who became a famous as a Hindu-phobic scholar, criticizing and demeaning Sri Ramakrishna. Another is Jeffrey Kripal, and, and this goes back to what you were mentioning about Sri Ramakrishna and, and Swami Vivekananda. So Jeffrey Kripal actually did his PhD under the guidance of Doniger, and his dissertation was about Sri Ramakrishna, the founder or the, uh, the spiritual figure behind the Ramakrishna mission. And for his dissertation, he actually went to Bengal to the Ramakrishna mission to take help from them. But he never, when he finished his dissertation, he never vetted it by uh, any of the swamis that he worked with, and he never checked his work with them. And he was actually criticized for this. And then, based on his dissertation, he published a book called Kali's Child. And this book won the first book award from the American Academy of Religion. And Encyclopedia Britannica listed this book as its top choice for learning about Ramakrishna. So you can imagine how important it is. And much of his thesis was based on mistranslations of Bengali writings. 
And when he presented his dissertation, actually the sole Bengali language expert on his committee was absent. So this book, which is obviously so important in the study of Sri Ramakrishna, what does it actually say? Tripal's thesis, in his own words, is that Ramakrishna was a conflicted, unwilling, homoerotic tantrika. His female tantric guru and temple boss may have forced themselves on the saint, but Ramakrishna remained a lover, not of sexually aggressive women or even of older men, but of young, beautiful boys. And he goes on to say that this homoeroticism this molestation of Swami Vivekananda and other young boys who came to the Ramakrishna mission, that was not just some side aspect of Ramakrishna's psyche, that the very foundation of the Ramakrishna movement, his spiritual experiences, his spiritual realizations, in other words, the very uh, Hinduism that Swami Ramakrishna, uh, that Sri Ramakrishna taught and, uh, and experienced, was false and based on sexual perversion and molestation of, of young boys. And actually, one of the examples of Hindu phobia I'd come across before, uh, before reading your writings was in college where this kind of an accusation or this kind of an allegation was brought up. And it was so extreme and horrifying to me that I did not even know how, how to respond. And I think uh, in, in our culture, we're, we're, we're taught to defer to our teachers and to respect our teachers and professors. So even though as a child I had a picture of Sri Ramakrishna, Swami Vivekananda, Sharada Devi in my bedroom, I would, I would worship them, I read all of Swami Vivekananda's books. Despite all of that, when I came across this kind of accusation, it was really world-shaking because I thought a professor is, this, is saying this, a college professor who has studied so much and should know so much, so have I, just, have I, been, have I been wrong all my life? So this is the kind of power that these academics have. The doubt have. they can put in young people. Yes. Because they have authority. They have, we've given them the adhikar by mistake. Right, yeah. right. And at that time, we didn't have anything on, on the other side. So this is the kind of impact that, that they have. And actually, it would be one thing if these kinds of accusations or these kinds of uh, fantasies or delusions were based on anything, if there was scholarly rigor behind them. Then you can reach conclusions we may not like, but we would say, yes, this is genuine scholarship and we have to confront it one way or the other. But this was all just speculation, not based on anything. Um, it was said that the, the translations that Kreipel used in coming up with this work were based not even on the primary or secondary meanings of Bengali words in the dictionary, but just some really speculative, loose translations of the language. He was not a Bengali expert, and he really saw in the, the works on Ramakrishna what he wanted to see rather than what was there. So I think this brings up a very interesting point. The whole postmodernist methodology says you can pick and choose. Uh, one of their famous words, famous statements is the author is dead, which means whoever wrote, whoever wrote the original text is gone, is irrelevant. We today can interpret it for our purposes. We can give it the meaning. So the author in our system, in our tradition, when you interpret Shastra, you want to look for what was the author's intention. Mm -hmm. With what intention was this written? Uh, the postmodernist says the author is dead and his intention is irrelevant. We we impose or we uh, uh, project on it uh, the our our intention or our purpose. So if our purpose is Hindu phobia, we look for that. 
if our purpose is to say that there's exploitation, there's oppression, there is social injustice, we look for that. Even though we may be doing a cut and paste and bringing things together, people get away with it. And, and the, the postmodernist uh, approach allows that. It's very difficult to argue. And if you argue against it, uh, they'll call you chauvinist and so on. This clip is from one of the most important investigative reports we did in 2017 about how uh, various acharyas who are doing great work helping the, the uh, Dalits and underclass in India are being targeted and attacked by Christian evangelists because they feel that they are hijacking the work that the evangelists would like to do. So in this particular clip, it's about the Kanchi Shankaracharyas, how and why they got prosecuted under pressure from these kind of groups. As we all know, the Kanchi Shankaracharya has a long track record of uh, leadership, both in the spiritual as well as the social realm for all people uh, uh, across India, across all communities. Uh, we'll specifically look at the work and the outreach he has done for uh, people from the Dalit communities, especially in Tamil Nadu. Uh, he has uh, uh, he has uh, broken a critical stalemate. In 2002, he actually offered worship at a temple where the priests are Dalit and in a region which had seen a lot of uh, uh, conversions of Dalit people by various forms of coercion and by inducement. And he has reached out in such a way. And again, uh, he has given, uh, he has frequently visited Dalit localities, Dalit villages, and uh, met them, spoken to them. And along with that, he has also been instrumental in helping Dalit people get on their foot by forming organizations and giving them a forum to actually gain uh, social strength and social dignity of their own uh, by themselves and uh, for themselves. Uh, so this uh, this is one example of the uh, kind. Of, these are these are several examples of the kind of uh, uh, Dalit outreach that he has uh, done. Uh, so in the first slide, uh, what I guess what the point being made is that he broke. Uh, a certain practice where the Dalits felt they were not uh, included uh, and he went to them uh, and uh, personally visited them, brought them into the fold, gave them equal status uh, and, and uh, so this is the point of the first slide, I guess. That is correct, sir. So this gives us a little bit about uh, the kind of work he's done. Now tell us how and why people have persecuted the Shankaracharya of Kanji. Um, I can probably talk to uh, first uh, how the how there was a lot of uh, persecution and harassment of the uh, Kanji Shankaracharya, and then we can uh, probably I can talk a bit uh, about the possibilities why they actually engaged in such an uh, behavior. Um, if we go back in 2004 there was a murder of a person called Shankar Raman, who was the manager of the Varadraja Permal temple. It was a shocking murder because the murder actually happened in the premises of a temple. And uh, based on uh, based on circumstantial evidence or, the, or uh, suspicion of evidence, uh, the Kanchi Shankaracharya, both the junior and the senior pontiffs were included as uh, a possible accused 
uh, and uh, they were included and uh, uh, we all know about the way in which they were arrested and they were treated and arrested and jailed and treated uh, what we want what i'm what i want to focus on and i think uh, I, I think people should be reminded they were arrested on diwali day yes and jail alitas uh, government did that and there were certain people behind the scenes who were well known hindus who allegedly played a role in uh, making this happen uh, out of jail uh, jealousy rivalry or whatever so let's continue yeah yes uh, if we go to this period and the kind of behavior the uh, press in general uh, engaged in and less known to the public uh, general public outside of tamil nadu the kind of behavior the tamil press engaged in uh, so uh, there was uh, first of all there was one particular instance of a murder in which the shankaracharyas both the junior and senior were included as possible suspects and there around this there was a trial by media in which unrelated cases uh, were dug up stories were dug up lurid stories were uh, published and uh, there was a gen in general there was a media frenzy that occurred so uh, we just take a couple of examples of uh, an individual called s anand who used to write in outlook india and who is currently a publisher of a uh, of a of a uh, publishing house called navayana uh, this gentleman claims to be a crusader for dalit rights and at the time this person really wrote a lot in outlook much of which was uh, pretty scurrilous writing and uh, there were there were accusations there were in total there were about five or six other cases which were added on and out of those one of those cases there was found to be no prima facie evidence and the case was dropped in of course the shankar raman murder case the murder case itself all the accused were acquitted of all charges and the other few cases which were just dug up and uh, you know uh, published all over the papers the dailies and the magazines they were never even taken up for prosecution not even a charge sheet was filed nevertheless so, so, the damage was done yeah so uh, i want to say that uh, uh, this persecution shook up the whole hindu community worldwide okay uh, and, and i remember this very well when it happened uh, i have personally met Uh, the kanchi shankaracharyas both of them the senior and junior have a huge regard for them they are extremely profound and wise and very practical in helping society hinduism today is published from hawaii from a hindu organization and i interviewed the head of that organization in this clip we're discussing the movement called spiritual but not religious it's a very popular movement it takes most of the, its uh, knowledge out of uh, hindu dharma and uh, does not want to call it that reclassifies it into some new kind of category called spiritual but not religious so spiritual but not religious has become a kind of uh, you know decontextualized hinduism that can be brought into <laughs> judaism Uh, uh, and retrofitted under Kabbalah sometimes, uh, sometimes brought mm -hmm. into Catholicism, and then the person, the person can say, "I know nothing about Hinduism. I don't have a guru. I mm -hmm. never went to a temple. Uh, I, I am disconnected. I have no knowledge of Hinduism. All I know is Christianity, and and I don't want to be religious, but I want to be spiritual." So I think this spiritual but not religious instances, which are not Hindu, but instances which are Jewish or Christian. if you look mm -hmm. at it the person is consuming something produced by someone else who was in fact a hindu 
So it's it's one stage removed. Yes. One stage removed. Yes. Yes. I agree. It's one stage removed. But the difference to me is if you were to talk to that person about Hinduism, try to take them deeper into it, they wouldn't go. They wouldn't Whereas go. if you talk to the other group yes. that we're talking, we talked about first, oh, they'd be interested in, in going deeper into Hinduism. Yes, yes. So, so there is the person who is the first generation experiencer of Hinduism mm -hmm. who then comes right. out, decontextualizes, and creates a kind mm -hmm. of an export variety for his clientele yes. who are Christians. Uh, he's right. he's an ex-Hindu uh, who, who right. has now become, uh, become stage two or stage three. And he's writing yes. books and he's creating this Christian yoga. He's doing all of these things. Uh, and he's come up with uh, uh, John of the Cross developed meditation and, uh, you know, all of these kind of uh, very fancy. Uh, and, uh, you know, he looks for old texts with some shred of similarity so that he can say, well, yes. it all came from there. So he, he's, he's rehabilitating Hinduism or recontextualizing, reformulating it in a Christian kind of a, a package because his clientele right. want to say that they are Christians. And he, what he's yes, selling exactly. to them, what he's selling to them, they, the buyers of this, uh, are the ones in that other category who are not Hindu, who don't want anything to do with Hinduism. They are, in fact, allergic yes. to Hindu, Hinduism. They, are, they want to be Christians, but they want, don't want to be religious Christians. They want to be spiritual Christians. I think it's important to understand. I would like to talk to the professor who wrote that article, but I would say that uh, almost every single person I've come across who denies Hinduism, who denies he knows anything about Hinduism, who says I'm a mm -hmm. Christian, but I'm spiritual, and I'm doing all this meditation and yoga and this vegetarianism and veganism and mm -hmm. all these kind of things, or who says I'm a Jewish person and, and I'm doing all these things and I want nothing to do with Hinduism and I don't know anything to do with Hinduism. Those spiritual but not religious examples are people who are the consumers of this kind of a, yes. a, this kind of a product which has been marketed to them, supplied to them by producers who are the ones who are first generation U-turners. I see. Yes, that's that's a good point. Do you, do you agree point. with? I mean, I, I have a lot of examples of this. I mean, I have examples oh, yes. like, for oh, instance, I agree. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, for instance, in the U.S., uh, there is a uh, Father B. Griffiths movement, and they're practicing mm -hmm. his uh, teachings and his meditation in several dozen. Uh, temple, ashrams and churches. Now, Father Beat Griffith was one kind of person in terms of his relationship with Hinduism because he was so deeply mm -hmm. immersed, he couldn't deny he got all these ideas from there and he was reformulating them for a different audience. But these people, tens of thousands of them in the United States particularly, uh, they can say, we don't know anything about Hinduism. We just got it from Father Bede or we got it from some other teacher yes. and I, we don't know anything about it. So I think there is a middleman who serves as a sort of a person who can who can change the who, it's sort of like money laundering, where where mm -hmm. uh, uh, money becomes clean, it, it's given a new identity, yes. it's it, it's given a new ownership. Uh, this is some kind of a, a laundering of uh, cultural assets, uh, because the man in the mm -hmm. middle takes something which is clearly Hindu, repackages it, comes up with a whole different way of uh, looking at it, and uh, his consumers don't have to know that it's Hindu. His, his value yes. added is that he can give it to them in a way that, that the origins and sources are totally disguised. Our team's 
final selection for 2017 is this clip from my interview with the head of Holy Yoga. Now that's an important movement, part of the overall Christian yoga movement. A whole lot of Christian organizations are co-opting and hijacking yoga and Christianizing it. So here is my interview with the head of this movement. Within Hinduism, there are various styles of prayer, like lighting of incense, storytelling. Hindus tell a lot of storytelling. Worshipping in song, fasting, and many other practices that become incredibly meaningful to the Hindu when adapted with with Christ at the center. So when when you adapt all these and put Christ at the center, okay, it's very powerful for the Hindu people. Yeah? So it enables them to see Jesus more clearly when the Western garb of Christianity is removed and they are able to worship in a way that is meaningful to them. So if you remember a few slides earlier, I showed you that St. Paul had done exactly this in the early years of Christianity with Jews and with pagans trying to bring them to Christianity by adopting their symbolism and a lot of their stuff, but not compromising the core uh, principles that are not negotiable in Christianity. Yeah, And now uh, he, he said that that's a way to spread. Christianity in the last 2000 years used this in South America, in Africa, they used it very successfully. They're using it incredibly successfully in India. So, now in this slide he says, he now comes to yoga. He says, is it possible to take yoga and place Christ at the center and use it to share his love and salvation with those who would otherwise never enter the doors of a church building or Christian community? My argument here in this paper is a resounding yes. So he's built the case that Christianizing yoga is an example of just like Christianizing, you know, satsang and Hindu dance and Hindu clothes you wear. So all these things which are not threatening, they're not contradicting or opposing Christianity in any serious way, we might as well adopt them because it makes us more uh, easy to be received as a friendly person. And, And the Hindu who converts thinks that he hasn't really compromised or betrayed anything because most of the Hindu culture is still there. This is why This is why in the Christian discussion on Hinduism, they're very, very careful in their vocabulary. They have something called Hindu culture, which they call Indian culture. And that Indian culture is a lot of Hindu Hindu agama, Hindu rituals, they call it Indian culture. But it is not Hindu because they've removed the meaning. They've removed the meaning as per agama, as per Hindu texts. They've given it a Christian meaning or a secular meaning. So separating the culture out of our metaphysics is what they are doing because then this culture can be appropriated and that's what they're doing with yoga. Okay, so in here, in this this slide he says, here in the West we have a long history. So now he's saying with great pride that we've been doing this for a long time and now what we're doing with yoga we've been doing for a long time. He says we have a long history of taking various forms that had one meaning in the ancient pagan world and importing new meaning into them in Christ. Okay, so we've been doing this for a long time since the pagan times. For example, the celebrations of Easter and Christmas at one time aligned themselves with winter solstice and the worship of the fertility god, goddess. Uh, And then aspects of Augustine who was also pagan. So he's giving examples of how the Christianity adopted many, many things from uh, non-Christians in order to convert them and made those things into Christian symbols, Christian festivals, Christian. So one day Diwali may become a Christian festival. They might do that. They might say this is the festival of lights and uh, Jesus talked about light over darkness 
and uh, get rid of all the Ramayana, you know, narrative. They're already abusing Ramayana as sort of uh, anti-Muslim and anti-women and whatnot. That work is already going on with Sheldon Pollock and people of that sort. So they can say, okay, either you secularize Ramayana or clean it up, or you just throw it out completely. And uh, Diwali has nothing to do with that. It's just a festival of lights. And uh, so just like they're saying about yoga, that yoga was already there, Hindus appropriated it, everybody had it, so we are bringing it into Christianity, nothing, nothing new. So this is, the, this, this is part of a very big strategy. I'm, what I want you guys to know is this is not some random, light, easy, simple thing going on, very innocent like they try to make it out to be. This is a very well thought out strategy. It has a long history of 2000 years. It has succeeded. We better wake up and understand for what it is. With these, we close our program for 2017. I look forward to seeing you in the new year. Happy New Year to all of you. May 2018 bring all the happiness, joy, and success in your life. Uh, thank you for your support, and we'll be back in a few days. Namaste. To help me, you can go to the subscribe button on my YouTube and subscribe. We need more subscribers there. Secondly, I get lots of emails on people saying, how do we donate? How can we help you? Uh, you go to rajimalhotra.com or you go to infinityfoundation.com and you can hit the donate button. If you are in a foreign country like in the US or somewhere, you can donate in dollars. There are different ways mentioned. If you want to donate in rupees, there is a column called uh, Infinity Foundation India and you click that and there are instructions on how you can donate in India.